Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 66 for Friday the 5th of October 2018. I'm Jeremy Sear and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to our country, what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is Kristen O'Connell. Welcome back. Hi, nice to see you again, Jeremy. Since we last spoke, you have, you have risen in the world. You have a position that I suppose we should disclose at the beginning, but also uh, I think you have a you have like a disclaimer to, to proclaim as well. Yes. So un- I have taken on more unpaid work as I want to do, um, and am now a member of the National Council for the Greens. So that's part of the decision-making body for the Greens. So that doesn't uh, stop me from putting forward my views in discussions with people like you. But obviously, people should know that I've got that connection, so they can take my comments on those things with a grain of salt if they need to, and the healthy dose of skepticism and you were on i think the last time you were on i think it was 53 it was the one where we were talking about the reverse ratchet which yes i kind of like if, if you're if you haven't heard that episode and you're listening to this i'd kind of like to point you back to it because that was the basic idea that whereas the conservatives are always like oh look we've got some cash give it back in tax cuts oh now we've got to pay for that and by god we're gonna have to pay for the tax cuts from last year oh well i guess all we can do is starve the poor into the ground yeah so the, the, the ratchet always goes one way like if there's cash give it to the rich if there isn't cash kick the poor which will then make money, which they can give back to the rich, etc. Like, it's always the ratchet in that way. So the reverse ratchet is the opposite, and it's the idea that progressives should be ready to go with... Because we've got things we want to spend money on, and we've got things which are progressive things, and that'll be everything from, you know, New Start being a living wage, to three-year-old kinder, which we'll talk about in a minute, to better funding public schools and, and, and hospitals and so forth. But that all costs money. So when we propose it, they go, we don't have the cash for it. I'm sorry, it'd be lovely if we could afford it, but we can't. So we need to have those things ready when they have cash and are going to give and are proposing to give it back in tax cuts. So instead of just going, no, we don't. You know, we've got to keep that money for something, which isn't very easy to sell. You go, uh, no, no. Instead of giving the tax cuts back, how about we do this positive thing? And likewise in reverse, when the money is tight and they're like, sorry, we have to just kick the poor in the face. If we're ready to go with, no, no, here are the ways that we can raise that money instead. So you don't have to keep squeeze the poor because we're short of cash, because instead we could cut back on negative gearing. We could increase capital gains tax. We could impre- have a, a land tax. There are all sorts of progressive taxes that we could have instead. Remove the bit where we give free cash to, to people who own shares who don't pay any tax. Or we could even not give $5 billion to private schools. There are so many ways to raise money in this country. <laughs> we could. Uh, we could not give half a billion dollars to dodgy reef foundations. We could not spend billions of dollars persecuting refugees on remote offshore islands. So many ways. Yeah. But instead of it being like, because if you just, oh, let's raise a tax on rich people, in the abstract, that doesn't seem good, particularly because people are a bit aspirational. They're like, oh, no, I mean, do we have to? I'd rather we didn't. I'd rather, you know, I, I don't aspire to be a poor person, so maybe we should kick them instead. Whereas if you're like, no, no, we don't have to do that, if it's at the, that time, it's easier to sell. So again, the conservatives are getting ready for the kick the poor part of the ratchet. Now they've just gone and done another giant giveaway at the give stuff to the rich part of the ratchet. And I noticed that the ALP didn't leap up at the time that they did that and go, hey, instead of doing that, how about doing this? So please, if you're a progressive party, like, 
You don't need to go back and listen to this episode now because I've just summarised it again for you. <laughs> but it's not a complex idea. Like, have the have those things ready to go. When when there's cash, that's when you suggest them instead of deductibles. When there's not, that's when you suggest things that bring in cash. Absolutely. There you are. It's really straightforward. That's right. I don't know why nobody does this. Have you been? Because we could have sort of came up with it on the podcast on that episode. I think. Did you have you discussed it with the Greens? We sort of got there, and I had previously kind of had. You're right. Like you often speak about the ratchet and that had been floating around in my head in the lead up to that. And I can't remember what the genesis of it was, but there was something going on in politics, which, yeah, this is why people have to go back and listen to episode 53, I guess. There was something going on that it really struck me as being a, a, a moment where the reverse ratchet should have been in play as a thing. And we kind of coined the term and I think we should use it more often. We should talk about the reverse ratchet and maybe there's like a, I need to come up with some other uh, coinage to do with pushing the Overton window back towards the center. Cause I feel like it's just moved so far to the right that it's kind of this tilted Overton window at the moment. So there's lots of those different things that we could um, come up with so we can start to sell these ideas a bit more concisely perhaps. That said, in Victoria, the state government, so our, the Daniel Andrews government have been very big on expanding public transport infrastructure. Also, roads, they're doing the northeast link bit mm. and connecting up the ring road with the eastern ferry. But they've been starting to, you know, they've extended some um, suburban lines, which is something that apparently has eluded governments for a very long time. It's radical. We don't know how those people back in the 30s were able to build railway lines, they must have been giants. They must have stro- strode the earth with, like, 50 feet tall people. Like, how did they make railway lines? It's impossible. Anyway, so they're doing that. And, and then they've got their plan for this sort of giant loop around Melbourne that'll take, like, I don't know, 20 years or something to make and cost a huge amount of money, but it'll the sort of thing that Melbourne clearly needs. So that's apparently... You're talking about the Overton window and the fact that it always seems to lunge to the right. In this particular case, uh, it's scared the coalition down here, the Liberal Party who are a terrible idea for November in the state election because they are they are mm. very heavily aligned with the far right. Like, they're really... There's a reason why the ACL is busy campaigning for them. The Australian Christian Lobby desperately wants to get the um, nasty right-wing religious fundamentalists in the, in the state Liberal Party over the line. They definitely are not friendly to... They voted against the rental improvements that happened recently. They will be scary. And, of course, Victoria has fixed terms, so they'll be, we'll be stuck with them. But that said... Uh, the thing they're out this week trying to champion a, a an improvement to the rail line to Geelong and then longer term you know, out into the regional corridors and decentralisation, which isn't a terrible thing. I mean, obviously they're just doing it because they want to shove public servants out into the middle of nowhere and, and sort of boondoggle and so forth. But so that's a, that's the thing that's been happening. And of course, the uh, Herald Sun have trumpeted uh, Matthew Guy's railway plan on the front page as if it's just this wonderful thing. What is his railway plan? Well, this, this is going to improve the railway line to Geelong, supposedly. But then when, when questioned on it, he's a bit vague. Uh, here he is with Neil Mitchell. All up, what's the cost for a kilometre of 200k track? Well, at the moment, you've got to upgrade your Class 1 track. It's a bit more technical than just saying what's it cost from here to there. It's not a politician's answer. It's facts. You've actually got a whole range of variables as to where you're building okay. and what kind of ballast you're going to use if you're going over certain kinds of soil and clays and all the rest. Will you need to acquire land? No, you're using existing reservations. Okay, so, so does that mean you close down the line? Do you have to close the line down while you're putting in the new track? In some circumstances, you might have to do that for construction periods. What, but what about Geelong? Would you need to close that? Well, if you're going to uh, replace any existing track with high-speed track... Have you done a business case on it? No, but, um, Neil, as far as I'm concerned, this is... Uh, I'm going to the public with a very clear view as to how I want to grow the state. If I win the election, it's a mandate to get on and do it, and I need to reinvest. I need to invest 
in this kind of heavy rail to actually decentralise so, the state's population. So will you That's do a, do a business people. case when you get if into government? Well, yes, what what will, if it doesn't that, that stack also, up? I mean, well, Steve well, Brax in 1999 was going to do all this. I mean, a very, very, very similar plan. He got in, did the, had a look and said, oh, no, it won't work, too expensive. How do you know that won't happen? How much will tickets cost? How much will they go up? <laughs> I haven't thought that far ahead. Well, they but, will have to go up, though, won't they? Well, not necessarily. I'll, but look, I, I must say, I, I haven't factored in what the ticket price will be. Fascinating. Yeah, it, it feels like they probably should have a business case. He should have considered what, what, the, you know, what the actual cost is going to be to users down the track. He probably should have considered how they're going to build it. You know, if they don't, aren't acquiring new land on the other side of it, then that means they have to shut down the Geelong line when they're building it. And the impact of that feels like I feel like he hasn't had a chance yet to check in with his mates uh, in the mob and ask them what they actually need him to promise to deliver. So I feel like that's... You have heard of Matthew Guy. <laughs> yeah. I do listen to your podcast, Jeremy. So that's really my... I try to limit my exposure to Matthew Guy, but I, I get it now and then from you. Even so, like a Liberal leader promising trains is... Miraculous. A step up. I mean, they still want to do their shitty East-West Link road thing, which it was a disaster and I'm, I still am angry that they shoves in those little poison pill terms and so forth. But so they're still trying to do terrible things like that. But on the other hand, rail. So you know, maybe like it's nice when occasionally the libs have to copy the ALP and they're like, oh fine, we'll we'll do some you know, people seem to like these railway things that you're doing. Okay, we'll give it a go. Um so that's something. I think conservatives wanting to build trains, we can mark, notch that up as a win, even if their plan is appalling and we just hope that we need to work really hard to make sure they don't win government to implement their appalling plan. But Everyone talking about building more trains being a good thing, that's progress. Yeah, it makes it hard for them to whinge about uh, other parties proposing to build trains uh, and it costing money when they've got a plan of their own. Mm. Their plan is not as, as... Or no plan. It's more like Scott Morrison's uh, Indigenous Day plan where he was like, they're like, when was that going to be? And you're like, he's like, uh, oh, I'm open to consultation. Would it be a public holiday? I... So, hang on, did you just say the words... Would it be in response to a request from First Peoples or would it just be something you would like to impose on them as with all of the other incredibly bad policy ideas we have about First Peoples and instead of just letting them govern yes. themselves? Or, or imposing terrible people on them like Tony Abbott. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it seems a little bit back of the envelope like that. Um, and we all, of course, remember what happened last time they promised it because the East West Link was another thing they promised without a business plan. But still contracts, though. They managed to get contracts together on that, right? Without the business plan? Yeah, just before the election with, with some poison pill terms. <laughs> anyway, I've ranted about that lots of times. Meanwhile, um, just, just in, in contrast, so the Herald Sun is desperately trying to get Matthew Guy across the line. Uh, the state ALP announced their three-year-old three year kindergarten plan, which is now something that apparently the, it looks like the federal ALP is also going to start pushing uh and the state ALP got it like this tiny little box at the bottom of the front page of the Herald Sun which was about that's not a woman and a horse or something um and there's a tiny box about this pretty like three-year-old kinder is a giant giant plan that makes a huge difference both to kids because it's clearly there's lots of research that shows that them having that additional socialization and education and so forth early on makes a huge difference in their lives but it's very expensive and so there are a lot of kids whose parents can't afford it or, and therefore miss out so that is a huge thing. It's like there's, there's a giant equity thing and, and you know investment in the in kids thing. And oh my god, hang on! This is the first time in my entire life that a policy involving kids will actually it's, it comes in in 2020, which is when my kids will be three. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll uh, disclose my my interest <laughs> in it, which is it's actually something about my kids, but also it'll help everybody's kids. So you know, that's a plus as well. So yeah, that's great. Bill Shorten was having some trouble with Virginia Trioli, who was kind of pointing out 
some other kids that he, he was missing. 112 kids out of detention on Nauru despite the appalling mental health conditions their detention has created, despite calls from Australian doctors, the AMA, paediatricians, psychologists. So not all kids are equal, eh? Well, first of all, they're two different issues. I'll certainly they're talk about They're both children, Nauru. Mr Shorten. They're all oh, yes, children. I yes, I understand that linkage. But what I want to make clear, and they're two separate issues, is that it is a good idea to fund the uh, two years of preschool, 15 hours a week, 600 hours a year of early learning for our children. And I think that whilst you make a point about Nauru, I think it's wrong to simply dismiss it and say, well, unless we do one, our preschool promise is not fair income. It is. Let me, let me, let me, let me clarify, let me clarify about, Mr Shorten. Me, it might be, it me, may be fair income, but you've still got on your hands the fact that you and the government and the government are prepared to let children languish in detention. Yeah, yeah, and I said I'd come to that issue. I said there were two issues, but I, what I won't do is have someone just simply dismiss a promise. It's not been dismissed. To, thank you. In terms of uh, the treatment of children on Nauru, I've been watching very carefully what the AMA have been saying. It isn't acceptable if children need medical treatment that they should be left to languish on Nauru, full stop. So perhaps we don't disagree as much as you think we do. But for me, you can't just simply say that it's uh, that we're not focusing on children. I do think that actually giving our kids the best possible start is incredibly important. We don't want to get too caught up in what's happening to children who don't have, who aren't going to have access to this new policy, do we, Jeremy? Because thinking about them might actually distract us from the really important issues, which is how well the kids who are safe in Australia with Australian parents and Australian citizenship are going to benefit from this. We don't want to think too much about how, you know, we're treating some of the other children who we really have a duty of care for. Yeah. Well, I see, I'm kind of torn because on the one hand, like, I think it's a, a very important equitable policy and it's not helping rich white kids because they can already do three-year-old kinder. Um, it's helping poorer Australian kids. So it's a good policy. I don't like the idea of it being diverted often. It's a thing that really should be being promoted and will make a huge difference to people's lives. So it's a really good thing. On the other hand, to help with the ALP, who are busy backing up the persecution of children, other children, and for which there is no defence and they basically deserve to be pummeled with it wherever they go regardless of whether they're doing a good thing or not. So, you know... Both sides. Yeah, I feel like we can take this as a similar win uh, to Conservatives talking about building trains or extending trains. We can say, hey, the ALP wants to extend something that will improve uh, the equity for people in lower income bands. Um, but also let's not forget and let's not ignore and let's not um, stop reminding them of all the other horrific things they're doing that we need them to stop doing. I think we should maintain that line with Matthew Guy as well. We'll take your discussion in favour of trains, but also please stop just literally everything else. Yeah. I noticed that the, uh, um, was it Scott Morris? That was, was The Liberals were sort of building up to a, where is the ALP going to get the money for this three-year-old kinder stuff? And you're like, really, guys? You know that just like a week or two ago, you announced billions and billions of dollars for really rich private schools? Well, not just that. I mean, they've now got $65 billion to spend thanks to the Senate blocking their corporate tax cuts. So again, we go back to our reverse ratchet. You take that $65 billion and you just give some of it to public schools. You don't need to give them all the $65 billion. We could even, you know, save some money, as you said, on our death camps and closing them down and bringing people here. There's so many ways to save money and to redirect it to public schools. More torture camps than death camps. Like, there is some yeah, death, they're now both. trying to bully people to death. But yeah. They're, yeah, they're primarily... I don't think... I think you know, death camp isn't their primary focus. It's more, you know, brutally crushing vulnerable human beings to absolute misery. I did, I did like the assholes who were out there saying, um, 
I don't know what the hell thread I followed on Twitter to, to come to this one, but somebody arguing that, uh, you know, if it's so miserable on Nauru, then why are they having children? And I'm like, yeah, no, oh. good, good point. Why, why would people stuck in absolute misery uh, have, you know, turn to the comfort of sex? Um, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would human beings just... stuck in... You dick. Yeah. It's like, it's like there's like... an inherent expectation that if we dehumanise you enough, like, you will, you will realise, acknowledge and behave in a way that agrees you are not human like yeah. maybe they're, maybe they're having what babies because they're human we, we look we've got a photograph of them at the beach and they smiled so everything's mm. fine yeah if you can get a photograph of somebody smiling then then they must not be being persecuted because the point if you know if you're being persecuted you never ever smile for your entire life in any circumstances well you're certainly not permitted to smile no no. I mean, you can't find pictures of people in the Holocaust where there's occasionally pictures of people who are going through the most inhuman torture, like moments of levity between. Like, you can still get... There are photos of victims of the Holocaust smiling. I mean, it makes you wonder what might have happened had people had smartphones during that era because the other thing that people fail to recognise when they put forward this critique of um, asylum seekers and refugees is that those people took the photos themselves. There's no journalist allowed there. This is not, well, in very, very rare and specific circumstances. <laughs> oh, do, do you, look, do we want to do this part of the show? Because it's actually important and mm. we probably shouldn't bury it at the end. Before we move up to federal policies and, and talk about Wentworth for a minute, do we want to talk about the, uh, the two stories that came out this week about what was happening uh, with Nauru and the courts ordering evacuations of Australia saying, I'm oh, sorry, we can't do it because Nauru stops us. Uh, and then the, re- the reveal that actually the narrow media policy, which we were, we were like, oh, I'm near a sovereign government. We don't have any control over this country that is entirely dependent on the money that we throw their way to persecute our refugees for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the documents from the department really revealed that that's entirely, as you would expect, and it's a deal between Australia and narrow because of course it fucking is. It's not like what happens... The Australian media reports in Australia makes a difference to the Australian, the Nauruan government. It's not like Nauruan voters get to choose. The, it's not like Nauru is really a democracy anyway. Um, but it's it's not like the entire point of it is to affect the impact on the government in Australia. So of course it's a deal. Absolutely, and we've had kind of two um, concurrent threads on this this week. Obviously, for a long time, um, the government has been denying that they have any sway over Nauru's um, policy on letting journalists into the country, which we know is bullshit. But we got further evidence of it this week. There was someone um, reported on, I think it was 7.30, somewhere on the ABC this week, saying, well, you know, we need to consider how out of control the Nauruan government is now because we can't even enforce the court order that's just been handed down to say that we've got to bring some unwell people to Australia. Of course, the Nauruan government is not denying to move those people without the influence of Australia. Nauru is totally under our thumb. And not only have they, as we've seen the evidence of this week, totally comply with whatever directions they've had from Dutton, from Morrison and all of their uh, comrades to block Australian media access, or in fact, all media access. We had the case with the New Zealander who was, I think, deported when she was there to cover the recent APAC meetings. Um, but we've, yeah. you know, we've now got... Hang on, they've let, they've let you know, independent journalists like Chris yeah. Kelly and Carolyn Marcus go. Yeah, there's certainly no... Obviously, I think that provides great great uh, weight to the government's argument that this is all about Nauru and they control their own affairs and it has nothing to do with us. It just happens that the friendliest journalists to the coalition have been allowed in and literally no other journalists. It's a great money-making scheme too for Nauru because they do charge $8,000 per application. We've got all these journalists from The Guardian, from the ABC, applying to go there, being denied. I mean, every time that's eight grand. 
I assume they don't apply anymore. I assume yeah. that now Nauru can say nobody's even applied to try because yeah. why would you keep applying and paying them 8000 bucks when they just go, mm, yeah, no. Fair point. But, yeah, so I think we've got a similar narrative being shaped around um, the high court order and Nauru's failure to comply or to apparent apparent in a vacuum um, refusal to allow Australia to comply with the orders handed down by our high court ooh, here ooh. on our government. Can I, can I try one for Urban Dictionary, a narrative where <laughs> you pretend that a sovereign government is making its own decisions when it's doing your bidding and is completely under your thumb? It's a narrative. Yes, I do. I think and, narrative is, uh, is a good term or a good, good coinage, but I do worry that we're not including everyone in Manus. Oh, that's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not very inclusive, so I can't endorse it on the basis of my progressive values. Well, no, but hang on, but this, that's why this one is specific. It's a, the narrative is specifically about a government pretending to be sovereign because PNG is sovereign. That's and true. And they've been actually a bit more difficult with the Australian government now than... Yeah, well... Well, they're not... Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm very sceptical. I'm very sceptical because of Australia's mining interests and the amount of foreign aid that goes to PNG. And I think that there are certain, that maybe perhaps Papua New Guinea has a stronger democracy and therefore yeah, that's we hear point. more pushback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and their court has been more involved. Than, that's right. Because the Nauru court is was ours and they keep just mm. out the judges. Yeah. Like, Nauru is just a cr- So the narrative is like even more, it's the specific special situation with a completely client state that is entirely corrupt yeah and like managed by like they they've they've charged their opposition parties for protesting absolutely and put them in jail too i think yeah and they kick out the judges yeah definitely not a good time to be a nauruan in nauru either if you're not in power i did love that argument too they're like what are you saying that if the situation for the refugee children on nauru is appalling what is fine for the nauruan children to be there it's different for the nauruan children like they're not imprisoned there yeah yeah. Well, I mean, they're not imprisoned there, but again, I wouldn't suggest that every country in the world is a great place to send refugees just because there are children living there. There no. are many places that children are having a really, really awful time trying to live in and their parents trying to care for them in, you know, conflict. I would suggest that there, there would be there would be our own children who probably would, would deserve to be refugees to come to Australia as well. Mm, absolutely. I mean, yeah, because political refugees obviously would exist under the conditions yeah the narrow opposition really are refugees yeah yeah absolutely that'd be hilarious if they tried to escape from from the persecution that they received in Nauru and got on a boat to Nauru. i mean we should be offering asylum to members of the opposition in Nauru, really but we're not going to uphold our commitments under the various un agreements we've signed up to so i understand that's a ludicrous thing to say but you know there are genuinely people in Nauru who are persecuted for their political stance so the border force saying Sorry, even though the court ordered uh, otherwise, we went along with Nauru blocking refugee medical transfers to preserve our relationship because it would affect the working relationship on offshore processing if we dared to disagree. If we sent an air ambulance to Nauru when they said no. Now, I'd love to say, Jeremy, in response to that, because there's really nothing to say to that excuse or poor excuse for an excuse, but I guess that I held a a vague sliver, sliver of hope that perhaps if we see a change of government in the next six to 12 months, that maybe we would have some slightly different arrangements with our own Home Affairs Department. But unfortunately... From uh, Bill Bill Shorten, yeah. retain, who's going to retain the Home Affairs. Yeah. That's right. Bill's been out this week saying, yes, he's committed to the Home Affairs Department. And I, my prediction, my little taps bias prediction, is that I think we're going to see like a long slew over the next six months of... Labor shadow ministers and Bill Shorten announcing coalition policies that they will uphold when they, if they form government. 
Um, but I am cynical, so hopefully I'm proven wrong. But I feel like... No, they will. They will because they're, they yeah. think they've got it in the bag and they don't want to risk it by giving the coalition anything they can say as to, look, they're soft on... If Look, if Australia doesn't have one terrifying super department combining all of these things that should be independent and able to check on each other, but into one giant immune to, to criticism and review body, which is truly terrifying, the terrorists win. We're on the side of the terrorists, what can I say? Yeah, look, clearly only terrorists would be opposed to a, to, to all of those departments being merged into one giant terror depa- terrifying super department. Yeah, no. Who else would object? As I always said, look, people who are worried about civil liberties, uh, you know, they're the real terrorists. It's true. Wait, no, it isn't. That's actually ridiculous. It's what they've been teaching us in schools. <laughs> they, oh, God. <laughs> I learned that at school. So you know how Bill Leake's son is still drawing the shitty cartoons in place of his late father? For the Australian. No, I try not to expose myself to such things. <laughs> so you'll have to inform me. I don't I don't have a subscription to the Australian Jeremy. No, I saw this on Twitter. <laughs> oh no 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 no. I, I, I um when I get access to the Oz it's by uh, stealing the access of a terrible relative who is foolishly giving Murdoch money. I certainly wouldn't. Oh god. Yeah. So the Bill Leake one is because so Bill Leake's constantly misrepresenting safe schools with with a, with some with a, somebody in a like a leather rubber suit like with a ball gag sort of thing lecturing a, ch- a class full of children. Yes, I've seen the image. Yeah, mm. so so for their three year old kinder one, he has that person lecturing the three year olds about I don't know I think it's penis tucking or something because that's their standard lie about safe schools. And then some slightly older children walking past and being like, back in our day we were only being indoctrinated with global warming and I feel like political correctness or something. So yeah, there's I'm not even sure how we segue to that, but it was a point about what we've been having shoved to us in terms of our education. Jesus Christ, who it staggers me that that paper is allowed to exist. I would say it staggers me that it's allowed to exist. It causes so much harm. Well, it staggers me that we don't have any kind of real media review body that actually, there's a consequence to, you know, shameless propaganda and lies. Yeah, it's really a difficult one. Yeah, I understand. It's, yeah. it's difficult to set up because you want, it needs to be, how do, you, how do you get something that reviews political thought objectively? But there should be something, like they get caught regularly promoting like objective lies, things that are clearly not true. And the pushback from the press council is just ludicrously weak. So there should be actual consequences when when you are like like we still have bodies that can find whether something is true or false. We have courts. Like we don't we're not mm. we're not in a totally subjective scenario where no who knows what truth is. It's impossible to decide. And well, and there's a very high burden of evidence in courts. Um, but I think you know it, there's a justifiable concern, particularly um, from journalists who maybe aren't currently working in the Murdoch stable, or journalists who have to work in the Murdoch stable because hey, they've got rent about what it might mean with the direction our government is taking if there were stronger powers um, from either the government or under regulation or through the courts to dampen speech. And I, it's just such a vexed issue because there's, I, th- I think there's so much genuine harm to people's health being caused by the times of types of lies that we see promoted in the Murdoch media and, and elsewhere. Well, the, the harm from, from their holy wars when they pick a target that they're just yes. going to destroy. Um, and. I guess it's just it, the, the power imbalance right now, perhaps a legal fund to support people who wanted to try and take a case um, against some of those really powerful media personalities would be helpful because it would mean that you're still you're not changing the law to weaken it um, or weaken its protections of speech, but you're empowering people who may not have their own resources to stand up for themselves when they are vilified 
by those organisations. There's something else that we could do constructively with the public funds that have been given back in. Also, legal aid. Uh, the reality of how many... Well, yeah, legal aid needs some money too because it, you know, is also being starved. Yeah, no, I mean, fundamentally, the courts, the criminal courts and the family courts are full of self-represented litigants because they, yeah. you cannot afford a lawyer because it's very, very expensive to mm. do either of those things. But legal aid is incredibly not available. Yeah. It's just the the means tests, the merit tests are really ludicrously tough and they lots and lots of people are way too poor to pay for a lawyer but don't qualify for legal aid. It's broken. It's one of the many things that are broken. And yeah, that's they desperately need funds. And people are like, well, why don't we give money to poor people for lawyers? But it costs you a lot more in terms of the court time that is filled with unrepresented litigants. It's a false economy. Absolutely. If you cut legal aid, you end up spending a lot more on courts, judges, registrars, police prosecutors. But so many of these things are false economies, right? We spend more to lock up, to torture and to kill refugees than we would to actually support them to um, have a good life in our communities. We don't spend money on education because of this lack of funds apparently that, you know, is obviously a farce and certainly there are other funds to, you know, to go back to things like free higher education, which we used to have, to extend education to younger kids, to strengthen our public schooling system because it's, you know, been under attack for so long. But all of those things actually have either a direct saving financially or an economic benefit. We know better educated citizenries actually produce stronger economies. So, you know, all of these things, if you were looking at it from the pure supposed economic rationalist perspective of a conservative, would actually make a great deal of sense. A lot of these, again, like supposedly progressive policies actually fit right into what a lot of conservatives say that they're there to achieve. And it makes it all the more obvious that they have ulterior motives, which are just like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, dividing societies and accruing power and wealth, I guess. Yeah, it feels like they've got some a particular group of people in mind who are already doing well and it's basically just about that group of people and fuck the future, fuck everybody else. And yeah. yeah. I think we should probably at this point drop in Aaron's stuff in my craw, which is about women's sport. We are going to have to go back to Nauru because we probably should also flag the actual document that came out revealing what the, the deal that was made between our government and theirs. But uh, here is Aaron telling us what he's stuck in her craw. You know what's stuck in my craw this week? The backlash to women's sport. Over the last couple of years, we've had some real progress in in the way women's sport is uh, treated at a national level, and and we've seen these new competitions come in, and I guess it was probably only a matter of time until we got the backlash, but oh, is it here. Uh, From Mick Mulhouse's comments uh, about women's football and, and the way he spoke to Moana Hope, to the fact The Guardian hasn't renewed Kate O'Halloran's contract, um, who was such a strong advocate for women's sport in in Australia uh, and, and in The Guardian, to the way people were speaking about Serena Williams. It just seems that everyone's looking for an excuse to do less, to uh, pay less attention to women's sport and to belittle it. There's a clear movement to try and end this this change and to go back to the status quo and I was so disappointed in Cricket Australia for not even having a woman who was a serious contender for their new CEO role and for doing yet another job for the boys and then the AFL's um, bringing in its new women's competition with the um, extra teams and it's shortening the length of the competition rather than extending it it's just so disappointing. It we were so hopeful a couple of years ago, and it just seems like things just 
aren't going where they need to go. So that's what's stuck in my craw. I'm probably more sad than I am angry about it, but I'm pretty angry too. It's time we treated women's sport with the respect it deserved and, and we arrest this decline because it's not okay. Well, Jeremy, look, to be honest, uh, I don't have a lot of skin in the game when it comes to women's sport. I think it's really important that we have uh, more equity um, and that young women, particularly girls, can see opportunities for themselves. But, yeah, I, I don't I, – I confess I am not a sports addict. I don't follow any sports. Okay. Except for Tetris, competitive sport. Fascinating. <sighs> okay, sorry, you just throw me. What, how the, what the hell is <laughs> – Competitive Tetris. I'll fill you in later. No, no, that's no. Amazing. Wait, no, I think we all know. Okay, so hell? last night my housemate introduced me to um, the state Tetris championships, which one of his friends was competing in, which we live streamed in our house and okay. watched. You're saying this is a sport. So, what is the physical activity like? Are they like giant tetronomos <laughs> like dropped on people? No, no, no. There's like it's it's competitive. It's like esports. It's oh, it's, okay. It's not sports like a physical there. sport. It's just like competitive. Yeah, sports. they don't like all contort themselves into shape. I was picturing like some kind of giant stadium with like huge Tetris pieces, you know, like where each square is like a foot and it's like presumably so something soft, like dropping from the sky and you're just sort of like people trying to punch them into shape so that they land. And That's amazing though. We should invent that. Okay. Um, I feel yeah. I, I feel like it's not a hugely practical sport. Is any sport practical? Sports make no sense. Actually, you know what? You probably could like have them sliding down a slide yeah. and then like... Your team is on both sides of it, and you're just like, as it comes down, trying to push it so it will slide into the right spot. Right. Like, you know, further up, they're trying to turn them, but not too much because it won't work if it's diagonally. Like, you've got to turn them so they're at right angles and stuff. It'd be awesome. <laughs> I'm telling you. Like, this whole podcasting thing doesn't work out. Like, I think that there is real future in physical Tetris. You know letterpress on the, iP on the iPhone? No. The game letterpress where you basically you've got a 5x5 five five grid and you've got different letters that come through. And you, you know, make no, a word. I do all my time wasting on Twitter. Oh, okay. Well, I figured out how you could. <laughs> well, anyway, it's basically like, like think like a, a word game, but you basically five by five in letters. And then when you make a word, so you, you, with those letters, then they go to your color. If they are mm. entirely surrounded orthogonally by your color, then they they go dark. Well, you're always blue and the other side's always red. So they go dark blue. And then what that means is that if the other side uses it, it doesn't flip to them. So they have to actually work their way in. So it becomes this sort of, area control but with letters like where the letters are the thing so i think what you're describing to me is a cross between scrabble and tetris which basically sounds like something that came out of my paws okay well i figured out how you could do it with with like in real in, like as a board game because you can have like a five by five thing like a like a boggle thing mm -hmm. instead, instead of being those dice you'd have like a dice for each letter so you like have i don't know two of every consonant so that's 42 and then like three of all the vowels so like another um, another 15, so maybe, you know, 57 dice or something. So I got that right? Yeah, whatever, something like that. And then you'd have them, like, a red, a dark red side, a light red side, a light blue side, and a dark blue side, and then two sides that were just white. And then so you'd have the letters there, and as you made letters, you sort of pick them up to make, okay, I'm making this word, and you flip them over, and then they'd be there. Like, you could actually have a real world. See, like, all you need to do to get some money-making ideas is have a podcast about Australian politics. Don't say this podcast oh doesn't achieve anything. <laughs> oh look! Well, we talking about last week. We were talking about squatter. This week, <laughs> yeah. I found in, at, at Savers, they made a game called Parliament in like 1991, mm. and it is a like all of, all the Australian historical games I found like that. Like there's one on the First Fleet, there's one on the Rum Rebellion, and this oh one's in Australia. And I'm serving Parliament, and he's so terrible. It's a roll and move. It's like but but 
where they're trying to they're like make z- make zany bills and debate them with your friends, but that's actually not any meaningful part. And it's just like basically trying to show you educationally how the bills go through Parliament, except it's just rolling a dice. It's so dumb. <laughs> but they're like clearly it's it's hilarious looking at the box because the box is is the the, old, the the Parliament the you know what was then the new Parliament House, um, and it it looks really. Okay, this is like an official game from Parliament House. Like you can imagine it being sold in the gift shop. And they've gone, shit, nobody's going to buy this. It looks way too dry and, and, and boring. I know, we'll have like a little cartoon pop-out of little cartoon men physically punching each other because, you know, action, biffo. And then on the back of it, they've got all these terrible things like everything is multiple exclamation marks about trying to make it seem exciting. And, and they're also trying to make it seem educational, even though it's a game where apparently uh, everyone can be promoted to prime minister at the same time. So you can have like six prime ministers, just like in real life. But to be fair, like I was going to say, the dice to me represents what used to be the Senate voting ticket, which was like your vote could go anywhere. It was not entirely up to chance, but it was incredibly opaque and you had no way of knowing. It wasn't all up to chance. It was up to, up to preference whispers. And... It was up to, but it was up to secret preference deals. And so as a voter, it was basically up to chance. Um, that's all gone now, but yeah. I have some ideas for how to make a game about Australian politics and, and, and the tension between uh, how about... Okay, so the tension between what the Greens are trying to do, which is... So you have the electorate out there. So this you've got um, represent humans. Sorry, yeah. So you've got pe- humans. people out there, and you might represent that as you know um, a couple of say say three 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 colours representing three types of issues like green issues. Green might be so one issue, and red might be economic issues, and blue might be um, your social issues or something. Um, and so you've got like dark red for one end, light red for the other end of the spectrum, and so forth. And each electorate would have a certain combination of those. And then you've got Different ways that you're, you're trying to win elections, but you, your party and your party has a perspective on the issues. And if you're closer to an electorate, then they're more likely to vote for you when the election comes around. Um, and then, you, but you're, you've got two different ways of approaching it. You've got the way that the big parties approach it. Of I'm telling you this because you're you're connected with the Greens. Like it's the sort of thing that I think the Greens might <laughs> do. Even though I'm now not talking. This podcast was supposed to be after half an hour, and I'm now talking. About I, know, I know, I know, I anyway, know. <laughs> maybe this isn't totally tedious. Who knows? Uh, let us know at. at well, may we say on Twitter whether you would like Jeremy to never talk about board games ever again. <laughs> but yeah, so the tension between, I think you could do an interesting game where the tension was changing your party to match the existing electorate, like what the big parties do. Like, what does the electorate believe? Shit, we just better echo them. As opposed to what the Greens might be doing, which is coming in and trying to change the electorate to push them in a direction on certain policies. And the tension between which way you go. I, thought, I think you could make an interesting game on that. Yeah, I think that As would be... As opposed to rolling dice and... <laughs> I think that manufacturing board games and coming up with board game concepts would be a lot more gratifying for me than doing the actual work of going out and talking to people all across my community and helping them to understand Green's policies. But, you know, I will can perhaps try and do both. I will try and juggle it. I don't think anybody's getting rich <laughs> making board games, even the really, really good board game designers. It's, <laughs> it's not a... Yeah, but I'm not getting rich doing anything else. I'm certainly got not getting rich being a Greens volunteer. So, you know, hey, I live in Tanya Plibersex, electorate. I am not expecting any kind of material gain from my involvement in politics for my entire lifetime. So... <laughs> well, if a, if a well-married-say listener steals that, those ideas before I get to do them, then, you know, at least they yeah, get them. Yeah, so. that's right. It'll probably happen faster. At least for somebody who listens to the podcast. Although, if you are going to do that, could you at least contribute to the Patreon? We desperately need people's contribution to the Patreon uh, for several reasons. One is because it's... It is actually um, a thing that's challenging to do, and we do it in the time and so forth. So uh, it makes a different, big difference letting, having the podcast get going. So if you feel that you could contribute to the Patreon and you would like to keep the podcast going, that would be very much appreciated. Also, 
Uh, one of the reasons why this is being recorded a little bit later on Friday afternoon than we originally anticipated is that there is there's some software that might actually let us do live transcripts and live um, and possibly even interactive back and forth and so forth called Otter, I think. And there's a cost that's associated with that. I think it's about $100 a year or something. And we'd quite like to be able to do that and sort of have a bit more of interactivity with, with our audience and so forth as well. Um, so there are things that we would like to do, uh, including keeping the podcast running. So yes, if you haven't subscribed, if you haven't, you're not contributing on Patreon and you would like to and you're enjoying the podcast, please do. That would really help. Meanwhile, well, back on what Aaron was saying about the football and the fact that we're not great football or sport following people. It did occur to me after last week's episode, and thanks to somebody who uh, did communicate with us on Twitter about how, uh, how a certain thing that we were discussing made, made them feel, because we had a discussion where we were talking about the religious freedom issue, uh, and uh, one of the perspectives that was being uh, debated was whether churches should have the right to discriminate in hiring. Now, I strongly disagree with that position and argued it much, but what we probably should have done and didn't is do a better job of recognising that the people who are most directly affected by that kind of uh, discrimination were not in the room. There were no openly LGBTI people present. Um, and we discuss issues involving LGBTI people, refugee people, women, uh, often when there are no women pregnant. First people. First people. We talk about um, issues. And, and obviously we're not going to be able to have on the podcast a person from the rep- affected group in every episode, or in fact, even often, really. I don't know. Sometimes we'll do what we can and we'll try to, but I think what we should have done is done a better job of acknowledging that. Like with the sport thing, <laughs> we are people here discussing it and conscious of that Erin is, is making those points, um, whilst also not really being uh, directly engaged. And so there'll be things that we miss, there'll be engaged, there'll be th- points that we, that we don't uh, see, and because the best way to... You know, can try for empathy, but the best way to obviously... It, it, one of the, it would be foolish to think that empathy uh, means that we can 100% put ourselves in the place of other people. Not that the sport issue is the same as things that directly affect people's lives. So I'm just the the analogy did occur to me just because we, you know, on, on a an issue that is important to people but not um, at the same level. Uh, so what I will try to do is make sure that we're a bit better at acknowledging that limitation. I am a white cis representing middle-class bloke in a... I, I have pretty much the complete privileged set. Um, so there will be lots of things that I miss. And I'm, and if we do miss things, it's, uh, please feel free to hit us up on at Well May We Say and let us know what we've missed. Uh, we certainly don't suggest that we won't miss things, but we will do our very best to at least acknowledge. And I think one of the things that we can do is make sure that when we are discussing things that we don't have any... You know, the game that we don't have any skin in that we're at least conscious that we might be witnessing things and be a bit more expressive about it, I think. Yeah, and I think I would just add to that, Jeremy, and say, like, for me personally, I find um, being an ally is always a work in progress. And so the most important thing for me is always to hear feedback from people who I want to support about where I failed. Because what that allows you to do is to reflect and to learn and to try and be um, a better a it builds empathy it builds solidarity it helps you um, support people who are experiencing discrimination that you don't better so I certainly like love to uh, be criticized when I fuck those things up and I think hopefully um, when people know that that feedback's being given with the right spirit of generosity um, it it helps always people who aren't experiencing certain disadvantages to understand more about how they can support people who are. 
Do you want to talk about uh, some of the ways in which Australia is failing uh, in relation to racial issues this week as to white people? Oh. Thereby clearly acknowledging that we might be missing this something. This week in racism news. Yes. Yes. Um, look, there are so many things. Um, and, again, I am a white person, fully disclosed. I've never experienced racism. I try really hard to listen to people of colour and understand more about um, challenges that are happening in this country. But um, I, and so I guess as part of that, one of the things that struck me this week was, firstly, the general um, lack of noise about the fact that there are lots of communities in regional Australia dominated by First Peoples um, that or in their population being dominated, I should say, that are experiencing uranium and nitrates in their water supply. And one particular case uh, just hit me right in the heart because they are fundraising privately to try and address this issue. And the news article I read about it didn't even raise the fact that, like, this should be a non-negotiable government provision that safe drinking water in your community is made available by the government and if that's not happening, everyone will yell at the government. But instead, this was like a heartwarming report about how this community is raising money and, like, I think it was really well-intentioned. Um, it sought to raise awareness so that people would donate money to this cause, um, but I just thought, where's the outrage? Oh, it's like, where's it's like, the those, outrage? It's like those online things in America of, you know, this teacher couldn't afford to get to work. So the community, like, working full-time, they couldn't afford... So the community worked all together to, to get her a car. Like, yeah, yeah, but that's just highlighting how broken the system is. Or people who, like, have to crowdfund. You know, they we crowdfunded to get this person basic medical treatment. Yeah, yeah, that shouldn't have been necessary. Yeah. So there's the systemic racism that produces <laughs> the situation. Oh, oh, oh. Did you see the, the worst one? That, that there was a poor guy who was having a really difficult time because people were pointing out that he'd... Um, or people were coming forward with allegations that he'd sexually assaulted people in his past... And then there was some doubt over whether he'd be made one of the nine most powerful people in the world. Um, and then they fortunately were able to do a GoFundMe where they raised $600,000 for his poor family. Yeah. Somehow I mean, didn't manage um, to squirrel enough away over his lifetime of very high-profile, very privileged appointments. Yeah, it's remarkable. Um, yeah, yeah, but you know, back back to I mean, I would. It's, it's all right. It's all right. I, I feel like I feel like he might be about to get a whole lot of power that he can then use to crush his yes. enemies. Although I wouldn't want to centre the plight of a white man in the conversation about um, about all of the horrific racism in Australia. I mean, we can't have a conversation about all of it, unfortunately, because the tape will run out. So back back to the point. Yes, the the having to raise money for people. That last one was being sarcastic. The other ones were not. Yeah, that's one example. Yeah. But uh, like when I read, I, you know, I read past the first three paragraphs as I like to try and do, and realised that the situation is not affecting one community. It's affecting, um, from what I recall, I could be um, misquoting this, but I think it was like hundreds of communities, right? At the very least, dozens. So I just I can't understand how not only are we living in a society where that was able to come about. But we're living in a society where that's not huge news. The news story is about the fundraising campaign, not about the fact that there are obviously hundreds or thousands of people living in Australia, people whose land we've stolen predominantly, because I'm pretty sure there's not many white people living in these communities. Um, and, and we can't even get angry about the fact that they're being given not just like not clean water, but water with uranium in it, water that, you know, will cause, I mean, obviously some of the most horrific illnesses that exist. And obviously if you... I hadn't even heard of it. No, I don't. I hadn't even heard and of it. And if you live in that community, although any of those communities, your likelihood to have great access to good medical 
care. Like, I mean, it's, it's just so broke. Like, as you said, it's so broken. Um, so I really just wanted to highlight that one thing this week because we don't have a huge amount of time. But I think, um, you know, as always, like I always try to keep my eyes open because there's so many of these stories that don't get traction but are there. And, um, yeah, it's really hard. Follow lots of people of colour on Twitter, I think. It will change your world, white people. <laughs> to all my fellow white people out there, make an effort. Also, in terms of The Guardian, which is the, it looks like the organisation that was reporting it, yes. all this can, could probably... In fact, you know what? After this podcast is over, I am actually going to subscribe to The Guardian. I haven't done it yet. I'm going to go yep, and do it. Yep, I'm a subscriber. Right. It's absolutely worth every penny, I reckon. Even when they... They don't always get it right, but they always try. And um, when they get it wrong, uh, they're mostly pretty good about it. So um, two other things to mention quickly. Before. One is the ABC thing, which we sort of it was just sort of happening last week. And so obviously the news is that so Guthrie, Guthrie left. Uh, Mill then had to Mill got sat, had to resign because of uh, because it became apparent what he'd been trying to do to apply political pressure for his friend Malcolm Turnbull uh, and his general failure to uphold the responsibilities that he was given. And now there's the debate over whether or not the board, because it became apparent that what Mitch Feifold had been doing has been ignoring the uh, what the panel set up to uh, recommend ABC panel uh, board appointments um, that the ALP put in place that was supposed to be independent and was, uh, the coalition have just been ignoring it and putting their own baits in and just, they don't care. So there is now looking like there's going to be some real um, pressure applied to the way the government looks at ABC board appointments, it's, which it's kind of the sort of thing that needed to be have some kind of expose for anything to ever happen about it. Mm. Because it's... Well, well, and again, you know, Jeremy, I remember reading as these appointments were being made. That, you know, probably, probably my guess would be in the Guardian again at the time that Fifield was ignoring the processes that were still not particularly strong, but those that had been put in place by Conroy um, in the last Labor government and. You know, again, not anywhere near as grave as the story about the uranium in the water supply. But those things were there and, and they weren't picked up. They didn't get a lot of attention. And now that we've seen the um, repercussions of those decisions, those failures on on behalf of Fifield, um, you know, we're finally getting some air on it. It's really important. But the thing that struck me most about this discussion around the ABC over the past week or two was listening to um, Barry Cassidy and Laura Tingle and a few others on Insiders over the weekend um, talking about a gold standard. And the gold standard they talked about was that, um, you know, people who are appointed to the board of the ABC or people who are the chair of the ABC should be really transparent with ministers and tell them that they're not going to apply pressure. Like, I just, I couldn't believe that I was hearing it. I was like, the gold standard is not appointing your mates to the jobs in the first place. The gold standard is not when you do appoint your mates that you, like, that you expect them to tell you they won't bend to your will. It's that you just pick qualified people. You just pick people using a, a fair process. So I, I thought that was worth flagging that we've got, unfortunately, and I know why, again, it's because the whole discussion has shifted so far to the extreme that, People naturally come up with what they think is a, a good solution um, without thinking about, like, taking a step back, I guess, and taking a deep breath and thinking about what does this really say about um, our institutions if our best hope is that we can have um, powerful people appointing their powerful friends and that people will regularly disclose and push back against the influences that result from those relationships. Sorry to put more bad news on the table, but I just wanted to flag that that's where we're at with some of the best journalists in the country. Well, I feel like this is, this point of the podcast is basically the Friday before the grand final. It's the sort of the quiet bit that uh, people might be 
you know, slightly dazed about the terrible bad news we were just discussing and uh, probably it's the appropriate moment to just slip out that the government was quietly slipping out the fact that our emissions, uh, carbon emissions have been massively increasing since they got rid of the uh, carbon price uh, and they slipped that out on the grand final Friday just quietly hoping nobody wouldn't pay any attention to it. Which they basically got. They basically got that. Yeah, so we can, we can just move on. We don't need to discuss it in any great detail. Did you see that no. um, the Liberal Party are attacking Karen Phelps in Wentworth. So Wentworth in two weekends, it's uh, the 20th of October, and the Libs are uh, extremely angry about Karen Phelps uh, being being a, a potential challenger to their uh, teacher-hating candidate, Mr Sharma. And so they've put out an ad, Sunday, Karen Phelps has urged voters to put the Liberals last. Friday, Karen Phelps backflips, announces she will preference the Liberal Party over Labour. And they sort of flip back and forth, forth between those two, and they're like, Phelps, do you know what you're getting? And I think that is a pretty powerful ad. It's almost as powerful as the ad that Sideshow Bob put out against Mayor Quimby in The Simpsons. Mayor Quimby supports revolving door prisons. Mayor Quimby even released Sideshow Bob, a man twice convicted of attempted murder. Can you trust a man like Mayor Quimby? Vote Sideshow Bob for Mayor. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> Karen Phelps. A candidate with so little judgment that she's willing to preference the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party that just got rid of a Prime Minister against the wishes of its own voters. Can you trust Karen Phillips? Vote for the Liberal Party in the seat of Wentworth. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting take from them. Um, I thought it was a particularly good own goal given that, you know, the polls have already shown that Karen Phelps has hurt her own primary vote by that backflip um, and they probably didn't need to say anything to try and undermine her. Um, but it does, yeah, I mean, it, it, it actually does highlight an important issue with um, independents, even ones who um, I agree with. Like it's really difficult to know how someone will respond or behave when there's no nothing around them to kind of keep them in check. Like they're hopefully going to be listening to people in their community, um, but it didn't seem like that was the reason why. Um, Karen Phelps changed that position. No. So it was really disappointing to see, particularly after she had made uh, a really important point, um, well, actually two really important points about um, the need for change in our asylum seeker and refugee policies and the restoration of the SRSS, which is the support payment um, that some refugees have already started to lose and more will be losing in the coming months. Um, and, also, you know, she was also making some really important points about climate change and yeah, it was pretty pretty rough to see her coming out and deciding that she was going to put the libs above even Labor, who, you know, I still got my issues with them, but at the very least you've got to put them above the libs, right? Well, I suppose if, if your main point of, di of difference with the libs is refugees, I suppose that's not really a point of difference between those two. Either. Yeah, you're right. There's no point putting Labor ahead of them, is there? Oh, it hurts. Quick, and quickly, last bit on that, because we kind of skipped over this, but yes, basically, but basically, mm. yes, there are official arrangements that have been now tendered to the federal court as part of an affidavit in the uh, one of the Nauru medical transfer cases, uh, reveal that, uh, quote, uh, the governments of Australia and Nauru will agree to a media and visitor access policy and conditions of entry. Media seeking access to the centre will be required to obtain permission from the Nauru and the Secretary for Justice and to sign a media agreement, but that's part of our agreement. Basically, the, it's further evidence that it is entirely a deal between the Australian Conservative government and the Nauruans to protect the political interests of the Australian Conservative government, which means, of course, that it can be changed and everything where they ever refer to Nauruan sovereignty as if that's a thing that limits them uh, is uh, shameless bullshit. That's a terrible place to leave it. All right, we've got to leave on something slightly happier. All right, on Thursday, the Hobart Supreme Court 
uh, found in favour of the uh, Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act uh, that the freedom of political communication, which the person was appealing to them, arguing they should be able to stand up and, and abuse gay people in these pamphlets, uh, that is not an absolute freedom and it doesn't apply in this situation. It constituted a direct and intentional public attack on members of a group. So yes, it was finally some protection for LGBTI people in Tasmania and I expect that the ACL will be ramping up its attack on this as some kind of an affront to their religion any moment now and by any moment I mean in about two weeks right after the Wentworth by-election when they can go full-on to try and get their horrible religious you religious privileges stuff through uh, the radical review because it's been like five the government's had that for five months and they're sitting on it like it's obvious why but let's let's enjoy for a brief moment that a supreme court in one of the states ranked people's rights not to be discriminated against and harmed over the right of people who hate them to promote that hate yeah it's nice to see an australian court interpreting um the un declaration of human rights and all of the associated mechanisms in the way they are intended to be interpreted which is that you have rights and responsibilities that are equally weighted and your responsibility uh not to harm others outweighs your right to say whatever the fuck you like so that was a positive yeah we do have some other positives would you like to hear two tiny more positives before we go jeremy teeny progress okay okay let's do it so for all the people with uh, who menstruate out there, we have gotten rid of the tampon tax. Oh, my uh, God. Yes. Well, it's not gone yet. It will be gone on 1 January. How did I not raise that? Yes, of course. <laughs> you don't have, you don't menstruate. So, you know, this wasn't front of mind for you. <laughs> Things can still be front of mind even if they don't, you know, affect my body. Like, I'm still in a world which... <laughs> but it was, you know, it was a tiny, tiny win. How ridiculous it was that Woolridge, back when they first brought in the GST, that who was then the health minister, didn't think that uh, menstruation was a health issue. What the f- Look, I would like to say that I am surprised. Um, I'm not. I remain unsurprised that there are still people who would think that putting GST on tampons is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, Chris Kenny had a rant. He was he was angry. He's like, we should be broadening it. Yeah, look, I think, well, if, the, if Chris Kenny is angry, then I can only assume we're going in the right direction. So um, I was really, really delighted to see that um, come to fruition this week. It will be uh, only effective from 1 January 2019, um, but the meeting of treasurers from around the country with um, the federal treasurer last week is when that uh, deal was agreed. Um, And then the other thing I thought was worth a nod, which is not in Australia, and I'm sorry, I'm going slightly, I'm going across the Tasman here, um, but we had a... A little company in New Zealand deciding that they are going to implement a four-day work week permanently after a trial proved that it had uh, no negative effects and only positive effects to have a four-day work week and pay their workers the same that they were earning for a five-day work week. So, you know, heading in the left direction, I'm hoping that we can take these little lessons from around the world. I I think I might have mentioned four-day work week in episode 53 as well, actually. It's a bit of a pet of mine. But, yeah, some small progress. So thank you for coming back. Uh, thank you for suggesting. So what we will try and do is look into this software that does the live transcripts and the live, enables us potentially to have back and forth. Also, it allows us, it would even allow us to do live update, live calculations of, you know, if a particular person on the podcast is ranting too much. Yeah, or a person, people of a particular gender are speaking more than people from a different gender. Um, yes. Can I just make a suggestion on that, Jeremy, on the Otter um, option? Um, I was thinking maybe if, as a Patreon subscriber, I would be willing, because I am one, just disclosure for everyone out there, I'm a Patreon subscriber to the podcast, um, I would be willing to pay for a tier that allowed me 
to ask you questions during the podcast record. So maybe it could be like a Patreon tier that if you do five or ten dollars a month or something, you can be one of the people who gets to engage real time with the podcast. Yeah, that's an idea. We it's I'm an idea. Concerned. I'm just putting it out there. I don't know, I, I, if I can figure out how technically to do that, then, then that is definitely <laughs> look, uh, We need to pick a regular night for recording if we're going to do that. But yes, I think that we should. It would be nice to have more of that direct engagement. In the meantime, while we still have those technical issues, uh, and obviously uh, the, the, the plea for Patreon subscribers continues, uh, but in the meantime, uh, if you would like to engage with us directly, uh, at Well May We Say, our Twitter is probably the best way to do it. There are comments on the wellmaywesay.com website, but uh, that the discus platform is not quite so good for a back and forth whereas uh, the twitter one seems to seems to engage people more more uh, in real time thank you everybody who's left a rating on itunes if you could also leave a review a positive reviews make a huge difference to the visibility of the podcast otherwise uh thank you everyone for coming back thank you Kristen, for coming back and thank you robin gray for the music thank you alex lum for the artwork uh, thank you, Christian, for coming back. My pleasure, too. Thanks very much, Jeremy. And we'll see you all next week. 